many of you here. Uh, today, my name is Christina Musat. I'm a fellow here at the philosophy department and deputy director of the forum. And tonight is the last night of forum events for the Lent term. But uh, don't worry, we have a, already have a full and varied program for the summer term coming up. So we'll have a few weeks break and then we'll continue right away. And tonight, it's my, I'm especially pleased to be able to introduce uh, professor Rahel Yeni to you, who is a professor of practical philosophy at my very own alma mater, namely the Humboldt University in Berlin. And uh, her, her areas of specialization are social philosophy, political philosophy, <coughs> ethics, philosophical anthropology, and social ontology. And before uh, taking up her appointment in Berlin in 2009, she was working with Axel Honneth at the Institute for Philosophy at the University of Frankfurt and the Frankfurt Institute for Social Research. And she also was uh, a visiting scholar at the New School for Social Research in New York and visiting assistant professor at Yale University. And in 2005, she published a book in German on alienation, which is obviously the topic of tonight's talk as well. It's the English translation came out in 2000. No, isn't out yet, but will be out soon. It will be out, I so. We look forward to that. And later this year, she'll also publish a new book, also in German, but hopefully uh, with an English trans translation soon, on uh, a critique of forms of life. And um, I won't be saying very much about the topic of tonight's talk, just, uh, just a few words. Uh, as far as I know, or as far as I understand, in, in her, her book, in her 2005 book on alienation, she argues that we need to, and that's indicated by the title of the talk as well, we need to rethink the concept of alienation because on the one hand it's an essential concept, it's important uh, in order to uh, account for a number of phenomena of contemporary life, including feeling, feelings of meaninglessness or indifference to the world that we couldn't account for without the use of that concept, but at the same time it needs to be reconceptualized, it needs to be rethought because um, traditional conceptions of alienation tended to depend on uh, substantive or essentialist pictures of human nature that are no longer compatible. But uh, I won't be saying more about that because obviously I'll be handing over to the expert in that and as usual we will have a talk for about 45 minutes and then we'll have ample time for discussion and uh, comments from you. So I look forward to that and hand over to Rahel. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for this nice introduction. And thanks so much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure for me to be here and to give this talk to you. Uh, maybe I should start with a preliminary remark. Um, rethinking alienation in this talk uh, means uh, a philosophical and a conceptual reconstruction of parts of the concept of alienation. Uh, I won't go into social analysis. Uh, it's more like uh, a precondition for what we would need to do in order to revive this concept uh, and to have it back, so to say, for social critique and social analysis. Uh, so this is uh, not something that really goes into the uh, realm of the social and <coughs> of things that should be criticized uh, in our societies. In my talk, I rather want to claim that there is a need for a conceptual analysis and a reconstruction of the concept of alienation, of the way we commonly use it and of its place in philosophical discourse. 
This claim requires a twofold strategy. We should rethink alienation, that is to say, we should keep the concept alive, because alienation still is an interesting and rich concept for social criticism, a concept that is somehow <coughs> crucial to understanding ourselves and reflecting on the social reality we live in. At the same time, if we want to reintroduce the concept, this won't work without rethinking it, in, a sense of, in the sense of a revision, reconsideration, adjustment, or reappropriation of the concept. The first part of my paper will outline my general strategy. The second part then will discuss an example. Four questions. The following remarks will try to sketch an answer to the following questions. First, what is alienation? What are its specific features? Second, what is, why is alienation an important concept? Third, why do we have to rethink or reconstruct alienation? What are the systematic problems of the concept of alienation? And finally, how is it possible to overcome these problems and to reconstruct the concept of alienation in a promising way? So, what is alienation? Is it loud enough now? Is it okay? During its heyday, it seemed to be self-evident what alienation was and what was wrong with it. It seems that whenever he feels that something is not as it should be, he characterizes it in terms of alienation. This remark by Richard Schacht, directed against Erich Fromm, seems to hold true for a whole generation of social critics. But then, at second glance, even the meaning of the concept itself is less obvious than it used to be. Alienation is a concept with vague or uncertain boundaries. The discourse on alienation, as we find it in both in the everyday use of the word and in philosophical alienation theory, refers to a whole bunch of phenomena. They reach from indifference and diremption to meaninglessness, fragmentation, loss of control, and loss of attachment towards a world that is experienced as indifferent and meaningless. The diagnosis of alienation points to the inability to connect to other human beings or social institutions, and therefore to oneself and one's own activities. Alienation indicates powerlessness and instrumentalization within social relations. The alienated individual experiences himself not as an active subject, someone whose activities or actions would be effective, but as a passive object, which is at the mercy of unknown forces. Alienated, we are helplessly trapped by our own activities. Wherever individuals are not able to recognize themselves in their own activities or actions, wherever we are not sovereign of the power that we ourselves are, I'm citing Habermas and Heidegger, one can speak of alienation. The alienation individual is, according to the early McIntyre, a stranger in the world that he himself has made. The phenomena referred to as alienation cover a wide area of individual and social pathologies, ranging from role behavior to the cultivation of artificial needs, commodification, fragmentation, the loss of community, social indifference, instrumentalization, and the impoverishment of human capacities. What then are the specific, what are the remarkable features with regard to the concept of alienation? What are the implications of describing a situation as alienated or alienating? I will focus on three mutually dependent aspects. First, the diagnosis of alienation noticeably brings together the issues of a loss of meaning, the loss of freedom, and the loss of power. An alienated life is in some way a poor life, deprived of meaning, but this poverty and meaninglessness is entwined with powerlessness and the inability to influence one's own destiny. Second, as a consequence, 
alienation has to be described as a power relation, as a structure of domination, which is yet to be distinguished from simple heteronomy or straightforward restrictions. Third, alienation implies estrangement, some kind of separation, rupture, or drifting apart, but it is a kind of separation that is not to be equated with the simple absence of a relation. I will spell out some of the implications of these three abstract aspects shortly. The first, the connection between powerlessness and meaninglessness points to some interesting issues. In short, a world I can't identify with is a world in which I cannot conceive of my own actions and the results of my own actions as belonging to me. As a result, I don't seem to be the author of my own life. This connection raises the question of how self-determination and self-realization relate to each other. Couldn't there be a meaningful world in which I'm nevertheless not in charge of my own life and not autonomous in the modern sense of the world? Of the word? And why would, vice versa, the faculty of self-determination depend on identifying with the social and material world that I inhabit? But it seems to be exactly this position that is implicit in the critique of alienation. And I, th I think this view is worth being defended. I'll return to this question. Here it is only important to mention that those aspects characterize theories of alienation as specifically modern theories, even if they are at the same time themselves critical of modernity, theories that, beginning with Rousseau, have opened up the never-ending process of the self-critique of modernity. The second point. As mentioned ab above, even the diagnosis of alienation refers to some kind of power even if the di diagnosis of alienation refers to some kind of powerlessness, it doesn't simply refer to straightforward cases of heteronomy. That our lives, our wishes, our behavior become alien to us in the sense that I'm interested in can't be explained by the fact that someone forces us to do something that we don't want to do. Rather, when, take, when talking about self-alienation, we are concerned with cases where our own actions and decisions, our own deeds and wishes are involved in creating a situation that generates the experience of alienation. By becoming alienated thus, we seem to be agents and victims at the same time. As the notion of alienation classically indicates, our own actions become alienating forces. Whether or not the reference to the concept of alienation is promising depends on how we make sense of this on the face of its paradoxical structure third point. Turning to the linguistic structure of the concept of alienation, we can investigate the kind of rupture or separation that is involved in alienation. Being alienated from something always seems to presuppose some former unity, a falling away from a logical prior condition in which the thing now alien was in some important sense one's own. Being alienated from something means being apart from something we somehow once belonged to or involved in or should relate to. That is to say, <coughs> objects or features that we are alienated from are not simply strange to us. As Daniel Brodness, Brodney, in his excellent book on Marx, nicely puts it, one might find Mars and the Martians and the objects on Mars opaque and alien, but it would be odd to describe oneself as alienated from these things unless one either had or perhaps ought to have a relation to them in which they were not opaque and alien. Alienation, so to say, signifies a specific relation, not a non-relation, or the simple absence of a relation. 
Alienation signifies a relation of, non, of not being related. In investigating phenomena of alienation, we thus have to ex examine the very structure of this relation. In rethinking or reconstructing it, we must away to cover, th cover this aspect without falling into the trap of presupposing a holistic model of <coughs> former unity. There is another consequence that we must be aware of. Similar to concepts like sickness, the concept of alienation includes a normative as well as a descriptive dimension. Referring to some phenomena as alienated or alienating seems to indicate at the same time that it is somehow in the wrong and that it should be overcome or abolished. Now, as it seems to me both, the importance <coughs> and the strength and the problems of the concept and theory of alienation are related to the above-mentioned aspects. The second question, why is the concept of alienation important? What then is the concept's appeal or potential within the context of social philosophy? If alienation is an obstacle to freedom, power, and meaning at the same time, the concept of alienation points to an important connection between those aspects, leading to a subtle th theory of domination that goes beyond established alternatives of autonomy versus heteronomy and allows for a deeper investigation into the very preconditions of self-determination, personal and collective autonomy, and a complex understanding of positive freedom and emancipation. If the category of alienation draws a connection between the self and world alienation, alienation from the social and objective world leading to alienation from oneself and vice versa, the quality or condition of the individual's <coughs> relation to self and relation to the world becomes an object of philosophical investigation and critique. At the same time, the concept of alienation allows for thematizing the structure of social relations and institutions as a precondition for the individual's self-realization in a way that goes beyond the narrower concept of legitimacy and justice. This is a <coughs> prominent feature of Marx's account. Overcoming alienation, and as it is, the reappropriation of the world and of ourselves and our activities in the world, does not only imply another mode of distribution of property or wealth, it points to and gives, a, gives us the prospect of another, a qualitatively differ, different mode of production and more general of a different way of dealing with the world. The concept of alienation thus enables us to address problems of contemporary societies that a mainstream liberal paradigm wouldn't allow for. The question of whether we are alienated from ourselves within a certain situation can thus be seen as a core concept for critical reflection. I would like to state the matter thus. It is a reflective stance that we as persons cannot avoid without consequences for our being a person. As far as we are relating to ourselves, living a life, and claiming to live it as our own life. Third part, the need for reconstruction. <clears throat> what then is the problem with the concept of alienation? Why do we need a reconstruction of it? First of all, the concept of alienation entails all kinds of philosophical puzzles. When it comes to the problem of self-alienation, what could it possibly mean to be alienated from oneself? That is to say, how is the process of falling away or being apart to be understood when it comes to falling away from ourselves? <coughs> Who is alienated from whom when we are alienated from ourselves? And how can our actions, wishes, beliefs be our own and not our own? How can they belong to us and not belong to us at the same time? The concept of self-alienation seems to be somewhat paradoxical. If you don't want to make use of a concept of human essence or an inner kernel, 
that would then serve as a substantial core within us that we can be connected with or estranged from, that we can fulfill or miss, what is it that we are alienated from? That is to say, how could we possibly conceive of the real self if this real self is at the same time and in some mysterious way hidden and nevertheless effective and allow it to claim some superior right? A similar problem arises regarding the notion of alienation from the social world and the world of objects. How is the connection to be conceived of that is at the same time present and demanding and inexistent? Thus, what I refer to as the concept's appeal and potential is at the same time the cause for the problems it entails. From where should we derive the standards of critique if you don't want to, to refer to problematic notions of human essence or to an inherent telos within forms of life? Doesn't the idea of a meaningful world and of self-realization always rely on some questionable objective notion of the good? If alienation refers to some kind of rupture, what would the unified, non-alienated condition be like? And if alienation refers to a loss of control, haven't we become more reluctant to embrace notions of agency that depend on a strong idea of control and self-control? To put it in very general terms, to distinguish what is alien from to distinguish what is alien from what is mine might have become less clear than it used to be. And there is at least another ambiguity related to the concept of alienation. On the one hand, the diagnosis of alienation refers to a subjective situation, a subjective feeling and some kind of suffering that is experienced <coughs> by individuals. On the other hand, the di diagnosis seems to be dependent on an objective point of view, on criteria that are beyond the subjective perspective of individuals. It implies some kind of perfectionist ethical theory. But then, isn't the idea that individuals should be able to choose their own way of life one of the basic intuitions of any modern conception of morality? And doesn't therefore anti-paternalism lie at the core of any liberal conception of society? However, my thesis is that the concept of alienation can do its work without relying on essentialism, paternalism, and thick concepts of the good life. Alienation theory thematizes obstacles to freedom and emancipation, and therefore the very preconditions for leading one's own life. As I already indicated, alienation must not be understood as the falling away from a given substantial inner essence, be it nature or some inner kernel or a pre-given telos. Rather than thinking of self-alienation as alienation from something that we ourselves somehow are, we should describe it as a distorted self-relation, as a distorted relation to our own actions, wishes, projects or beliefs rather than thinking of social alienation as alienation from some pre-given community we should conceive of we should conceive of it as some failure in relating to the social circumstances we already are confronted with a distorted relation to the fact of being associated with others or more general to the fact of being in the world what we need to examine are the various ways in which these distortions comes about thus while the concept of alienation does not rely on a metaphysical concept of human essence, it does rely on the assumption that the relation to our own wishes, desires, and actions might be disturbed. Alienation understood in this way is a distorted mode of praxis, and as I want to suggest, with and against Marx, a defective mode of appropriation. <coughs> I will conclude the first part of my paper with six theses. First, 
<clears throat> to be alienated from oneself means not to be able to deal or to cope with oneself. Nicht über sich verfügen können is a notion that I adopt from Ernst Tugendhat and that could also be translated with being able to dispose of oneself, of being in command or control of oneself. If this wasn't a bit harsher than I wanted to be. To put it differently, in this case one doesn't have access to oneself with respect to what one is wishing and doing. Second, the concept of being able to cope with oneself refers not only to a theoretical faculty, but to the practical ability to relate to oneself. The world thus relies on being able to cope or deal with oneself, and the world thus relies not only on self-transparency. It is the productive process of a practical self-appropriation on which an undisturbed or successful relation to self is based, and which is disturbed in experiences of phenomena of self-alienation. If therefore alienation can be understood as a disturbed process of appropriation, the explanation of the motive, motive of being oneself or being true to oneself is no longer dependent on the idea of congruence with some kind of inner kernel. And the motive of being in tune with the world is no longer dependent on the idea of a pre-given unity. Rather, it finds its standard in the successful process of appropriation in the mode, not in the substance or content of this process. To borrow again from Tugendhat, the decisive question is how this appropriation is brought about, not what it is that should be appropriated. Four, this process of appropriation has to be understood as productive. The self that could be alienated from itself constitutes itself only in this process of appropriating itself. What can be appropriated should not be thought of as being outside of this process. Five, self-appropriation is mediated through the process of appropriating the world. The relation to self can only be explained through the relation that one has to one's own wishes, desires, and activities, which are then directed at the world. Self-alienation thus is always also alienation from the world. And vice versa, alienation from the world is alienation from the self. It is against this background that one has to conceive of indifference as a form of alienation, and this is a topic that I'm going to come back to later. <coughs> Consequently, the model of alienation that I want to suggest does not relay on the idea of an authentic self as being undisturbed in its inwardness. It is oriented towards a conception of self-realization that conceives of self-realization as realizing oneself in the world in the Hegelian sense of giving oneself reality through its embodiment in the world. The practical consequences of understanding alienation as an obstacle to self-appropriation in the above-mentioned sense are the following. Instead of <coughs> adhering to an idea of human potentials and the demand for a fully developed individual, going along with some idea of what it is that should be developed, the analysis will focus on abstractions of the process of developing interests and faculties. Instead of being caught up in the philosophical obscure complexities of true versus false needs, alienation theory will concentrate on the circumstances of the formation of one's will and desires and will differentiate between different modes of integrate, integrating them into some coherent idea, idea of oneself. And instead of conceiving of social relations as instances of some substantial commonality, the diagnosis of alienation will be concerned with their pattern and our possibilities of shaping them. At the same time, this diagnosis does not aim at a harmonistic model of reconciliation. Alienation and the overcoming of alienation, 
might then not only be a matter of degree, but also an open process, in the pursuit of which the conditions of its success or failure come to be modified. <laughs> the concept of alienation then problematizes that what might be our own, but it doesn't presuppose it. If, if then the diagnosis of alienation thematizes a mode of leading one's life and leading one's life together with others in a meaningful world, the various phenomena of alienation confront us with so many obstacles to self-determination. I will not discuss an example of self-alienation in order to spell out some of the motives that I've mentioned above. <coughs> In the second part of my paper, I will discuss the phenomenon of indifference as a loss of self and self-alienation, a phenomenon of alienation in which one experiences the entire world is foreign and indifferent, loses one's reference to the world <coughs> and retracts from it. To what extent, however, is indifference alienation if certainly the capacity to distance oneself in regard to particular entanglements in the world can also at the same time be understood as freedom. What is in question here is the relationship between self and world as well as this thesis that, this is not, that, this is, that it is not possible to conceive of self-realization outside of a successful reference to the world. My discussion will be organized around a literary example that is then to be explained with an eye to the concept of self-alienation. The indifferent man. The figure of the professor of linguistics, Perlman, in Pascal Mercier's novel, Perlman's Schweigen, The Silence of Perlman, illustrates a case of self-alienation as indifference. Perlman is a formerly more ambitious and still generally respected scientist who in Mercier's description has lost the belief in the importance of scientific activity. And since this has looked at science of it through a wall of glass. The once ambitious scientist now reacts indifferently to critiques of his works. As if under a form of local anesthesia, as Pastamic Mercier puts it, the thesis that he once advocated no longer appear to belong to him. The identification with them has disintegrated. However, his interest in linguistics was not displaced by other convictions or passions. Also, the distance towards his old life and former passions a distance that is increasingly perceptible during the three weeks conference that he's organizing is not causally related to the mode of operation of academic life. Perlman is not a rebel. He doesn't want to change the world. Several characteristics <coughs> suggest themselves for discussing the example of Perlman as a case of self-alienation. First, the course of events described is not merely the expression of a process of self-change and the displacement of interest that accompanies it. There is nothing else that moves to the center of Perlman's attention in the place of science. It is more radically a question of the disintegration of the interest in the world in general. Metaphorically speaking, in one case, the cone of light of interest changes from one area to the other, while here the light fades as a whole. In distinction, to a change of orientations, here no new one came to, to take the place of the old point of reference, and no new interests and projects replace the old ones. And as difficult as it, may, as it may also be in the case of a radical change to balance out the discontinuity between an earlier and a later self, this problem definitely distinguishes itself, itself from a condition of radical indifference 
through the fact that here one is still involved in or tied to the world, while in the case of indifference one appears to be completely disconnected from it. The problem is therefore not discontinuity, discontinuity but rather the radical disconnectedness and the problem of meaninglessness that accompanies it that we will attempt to understand in what follows. <coughs> but why then is Palance's indifference a case of alienation? The previously mentioned <laughs> metaphor of local anesthesia makes it clear that Palman must have earlier understood his work and his position as part of himself. Differently put, he identified with it. It is a part of the process we are describing here that for him things which he previously understood as integral components of himself all of a sudden appear external and distant. We can therefore recognize the feature of processes of alienation that we developed above that we can only be alienated from things that we were previously connected with. But now, one can also part with e earlier interests and projects. They do not necessarily remain uh, in according with the metaphor now anesthetized part of myself simply because of the fact that I once had them. It must therefore be explained to what extent also in this case the disconnectedness itself still represents a relation. Why then should this be a case of self-alienation and not of alienation from the world? Is it not the external world that has become foreign to Pellman? If he cuts himself off from an external world that he has become indifferent to and withdraws into himself, why should he in doing so be alienated from himself? Discussing Pellman's crisis as a case of self-alienation and therefore as a problem that he has not only with the world but also with himself makes a profound assumption. His indifference to the world, so the claim goes, has effects on the relationship of the individual to his or herself. In what he has done, what was important to him, and that which he has identified with has become foreign and inaccessible to him, then, according to my interpretation, he becomes foreign to himself to the extent that the world external to him becomes foreign. The condition of indifference, the thesis goes, in taking hold with the relationship to the world also takes hold with the relationship of a person to themselves. That leads to an, to an assumption that we will investigate in what follows. Insofar as our projects and interests tie us to the world, the reference to these conversely allows us to first determine ourselves as something. Insofar as we, in a certain respect, first become real through this process, a concept of self-realization comes into play that distinguishes itself through the fact that it conceives of self-realization not as the inner growth or as the finding oneself of the individual, but rather as the manner of reference to the conflict with or involvement in the world. One can therefore only affirm oneself through, by a detour through the world and can only realize oneself through one's involvement with the world. Then, however, <coughs> self-alienation must be understood as the alienation of the world from the world and conversely alienation from the world must result in self-alienation. <coughs> in what follows I will discuss the loss of identification as a source of an instance of alienation. The loss of identification as the loss of effective connections to oneself and the world. Here also it is a matter of understanding the relation character of the type of the disintegration of a relation in order to thereby support the diagnosis of alienation. I put forward the thesis. <coughs> <coughs> this thesis contains uh, two implications which must be further explained. First, the self determines itself from the world 
constitutes itself therefore in the identification with projects and the effective as well as cognitive cataxis of things in the world. It constitutes itself through its interests in the things and the involvement in the world. What we are trying to understand here, what is meant by identification. Second, this presupposes a thesis regarding the boundaries between inside and outside, or between myself and the world, which I explain by making use of William James' psychology. I will only briefly clarify these two implications. The claim that we ourselves are made of stand are made in a connection to the identification with projects in the world refers to a form of interconnection which we are already which we already designated as identification. What, however, does it mean to identify with something? To identify myself with something or, something or someone can only have a figurative sense. Formulated more precisely, I identify myself here with the well-being or fate of something or someone. When someone identifies with his child, then he identifies himself with the well-being of the child. When one identifies with the football team, then one identifies with its success or lack thereof. I want my team to win. I desire that my child is happy. The identity exists in this case, therefore, not between me and the football team or between me and the child, but rather between the desires of the child and my own <laughs> desires or between the hopes of the team or team members and my, and my own hopes. If the team wins, then I myself feel that I have won. When, this, when the child is successful, I'm proud. I have identified with the team or the well-being of the child insofar as my own welfare and the satisfaction of my desires are tied to the welfare of the child and the fulfillment of the hopes of the team. What, however, is the difference between the process of wishing something success and the condition of identifying with some, something? What does the talk of identifying oneself mean beyond wishing something well? When one identifies oneself with something, one makes it into a component of one's identity or one's self-understanding. I tie my fate to that of the other person or thing, and in such a way that its fate is constitutive for my identity. In the one case, I remain, as with all goodwill, <coughs> separated from the one I wish well. In the other case, it appears that a type of interjection or an incorporation of something as a part of oneself takes place. This is why there is a suspicion of a lack of distance when one says of someone that he identifies completely with, some, with something. It is then certainly difficult to explain how one is to imagine this incorporation. Perhaps one can recognize what is meant here merely in the effect that William James already points to and which Harry Frankfurt always emphasizes. One recognizes that one, ha one has identified with something in that one is vulnerable in its respect. One experiences the defeats of the football team as one's own defeats. When it goes badly with one's own child, then it's going badly for oneself. The identification with something would then be more than just a quantitative increase of goodwill, even if it may not always be possible here to clearly define the boundaries. The structurally decisive point appears, however, to be the following. In the one case, case there is someone who wants something and refers to something, but in doing so also remains separate from the object of his endeavors. In the other case, the case of identification, we understand the respective identity as constituted through this reference. It is inconceivable outside this, this reference and is defined by it. There, the identity of the one who identifies with something, something is entangled with this thing. 
This model, this basic form of identification, has two consequences that we still must consider. First, if I commit myself to something that I identify with, in, in this sense, this is no altruistic way of acting, insofar as my own fate is interwoven with that of the thing or person. Second, if I identify myself with something, it does not have the significance of a means to an end. The sponsor who wishes the football team success in order that his investment pays off, has at least in this respect not identified with it. The success of the team is for him a means to the end of economic success. In fact, here also, their, fares, their fates are thereby interwoven with one another to a certain extent, however certainly not in an identificatory manner. One sees in, the, in this, this in the fact that the sponsor will again turn away from his team in the case of a continuing lack of success, while the fan who actually identifies with it must remain true for it for the better or worse. This thesis of the interconnection between self and world can be laid out further against this background. If one starts from the fact, as appears to be presupposed by the thesis of alienation, that the self constitutes itself by means of the identificatory reference to projects, persons and objects in the world, then the division between inside and outside, or self and world, is up for debate. The self is then no fixed quantity, with a clear dividing line between inside and outside. I'm quoting William James. We see then that we are dealing with a fluctuating material, the same object being sometimes treated as a part of me, at other times as simply mine, and then again as if I had nothing to do with it as, at all. In its, in its widest problem possible sense, however, a man's self is the sum total of all that he can call his. Not only his body and his psychic powers, but his clothes and his house, his wife and his children, his ancestors and friends, his reputation and works, his lands and horses, and yacht and bank account. All these things give him the same emotions. If they wax and prosper, he feels triumphant. If they dwindle and die away, he feels cast down. What is my own, therefore, end of quote, what is my own, therefore, what belongs to me is not inside somewhere. It constitutes itself in the reference to the external world. If identification, therefore, means to understand something as a part of myself, I am conversely everything with which I am, conversely everything with which I can identify. I am not prior to it or beyond it, but am instead myself in these identifications. What now does that mean for Perlman's indifference and the relationship to, to be discussed in regard to it of self and world? Perlman may be described as someone who can no longer identify with anything. His indifference means a loss of identification. In the novel, this process of the loss of identification is vividly described. Whenever his theses are called into question, as happens during a conference, he no longer feels dejected and attacked, as he did at times when he still ambitiously pursued his career. On the other hand, the feeling of triumph it's, is lacking when he is victorious <laughs> in a debate. It is as if he was, as if it was not his triumph, or as if, as if it did not belong to him, even there where he had brought it about himself. The fact that everything has become indifferent to him leads to the impression as if it was not he who had written here or as if it was not he who was victorious in the debate or was defeated. However, if the me assembles the external world and ident identification in the world from 
precisely such effective cataxis as James suggests, suggests, then the question arises of what exactly he, Perlman, actually is under such circumstances, if so little of what made, made him up still remains. If, according to William James, the self is a fluctuating material, therefore is broader or more narrow and can expand or shrink, that means the self is understood as being as large or broad as the circle of such identificatory <coughs> references. Perlman's self would therefore be shrunken in the face of its indifference. It is suffering <coughs> what James terms a shrinkage of our personality, a partial conversion to ourselves to nothingness. But why then is a shrunken self supposed to be an alienated self? Why must one take an active part in the world in order to realize oneself? The background assumption here is the following. It appears to belong to the leading of one's life as a person that one pursues projects in one's life, or in any case has standards for one's life, and that one is therefore not completely indifferent to everything. One can sharpen this point by saying that the self must realize itself in the world in order to become real. But why would that be the case? What therefore justifies me, even if it's possible to diagnose those who are indifferent with the shrinking of the self, in conceiving of this as a problematic process of self-alienation and the loss of self? Certainly, retracting from the world, the cutting of ties with the other and others, is not without consequences. To what extent, however, does such a retreat mean an individual self-alienation or even a threat to what makes up the individual? How small may a shrunken self be without it amounting to a loss of self? And how far can one withdraw into an inner citadel without thereby losing oneself? Doesn't that presuppose certain assumptions of what belongs to a complete or in any case sufficiently extended self, assumptions which one cannot make so easily? That leads to two general questions. Why, in fact, should one in general have interests in the world, what therefore speaks against apathy? And secondly, how is the claim to be justified that if one abandons one interests, one's interest in the world, that one also loses one's interest in oneself? Can one not consider the world unimportant and oneself important? Connected with the answer to these two questions is, in the end, <coughs> is in the, end the point uh, which is decisive for the concept of alienation, of to what extent indifference is also a deficient relation and can therefore be understood as alienation. Here one can be tempted to diagnose a fundamental ambivalence. If on the one hand the disconnectedness with the world appears, when negatively assessed, to be an appearance of alienation, one can on the other hand here suspect a liberatory potential, a potential <coughs> for independence. With the retreat from the world and the withdrawal of identifications, the area open to attack in which the individual can be wounded indeed does become smaller. If we, following James' line of thought, no longer place any value on our clothes, children, and projects, then their loss or their ruin can no longer hurt us. One could therefore envy our pelman, who has become indifferent as someone who is suddenly free from all worries and is no longer tied to anything and who lives in, in a condition of complete agreement with himself. Insofar as he no longer places any value on this thesis and on his thesis and increasingly even less on his reputation, he can no longer be wounded and is no longer dependent on recognition. It is as with Hegel's characterization of the antique Stoics. He no longer considers, quote, 
part of himself everything that belongs to his to desires and fear. This gives him the position of being a foreigner in regard to himself. The Stoic, who retreats from the world, is identical with himself in so far as he no longer directs himself, that is, his will, towards others, and in so far as he is not tied to the world by desires of fear. Whoever no longer wants and desires has nothing more to fear. This constitutes his sovereignty, the sovereignty of the one who is indifferent. Total indifference would be understood in this manner the hate of freedom. Dependent on nothing and nobody to be determined <coughs> by nothing and nobody, when indifferent one is free. But can I, according to what has been said above, be in agreement with myself without a condition to things in the world? Can I be free without wanting something in the world and from the world? And to what extent is someone free for whom his life doesn't matter? As Martin Löfbeer says, it is to be doubted that a person is autonomous for whom it doesn't matter how she lives. But why is that so? What is at stake here? In the last analysis are the conceptions of personal identity, freedom and self-realization, which are tied to the positions that we have sketched. <coughs> In what follows, I loosely refer to an argument made by Hegel. His argumentation is imminent. It is directed at the self-contradictory nature and incompleteness of a freedom in the citadel. With the help of Hegel's discussion of the Stoics of antiquity, or with Stoicism as a manner of practical life conduct, it is possible to draw conclusions in regard to the relationship of freedom and indifference that has become problematic. <coughs> the Stoic is, in Hegel's account, the one who seeks to attain inner freedom through being indifferent through disengagement in relation to the external world. In the relationship to it, he cultivates, as Hegel says, not dull, but rather deliberate apathy. What merely happens to Perlman so that he becomes indifferent is here a strategy. As Hegel puts it, he no longer considers part of himself everything that belongs to desi desires and fear. Precisely in the sense of what has been said above, the Stoics keeps the area open to attack by means of which the world can affect him, disappoint him, or compel him small. <coughs> For our question, the arguments are then interesting with which Hegel rejects the thus attained inner freedom as sufficient. Insofar as he criticizes the freedom gained, the freedom of the rejection of relationships as empty and abstract, this leads to an alternative model of a freedom that can be positively determined. And so far as freed as the freedom that results from the spurning of existence, as Hegel says, fails to provide itself with a determination, there stands opposed to it the positive, actually achieved freedom of the individual that is capable of providing itself with a determination in the world, understanding itself from it, and realizing itself in it. What is then the problematic aspect of the inner freedom of the Stoic? In connection with this, there are more interrelated <coughs> aspects to consider. First, Stoic freedom, indeed the entire Stoic existence, is defensive. Where Hegel responds to Stoicism in the form in which it became historically effective, he refers here to the late Roman Stoicism rather than the Hellenistic Stoicism, he points to the socio-historical conditions of the condition of the Stoic. It is a question of a rea reaction to the loss of real universality and the reality of the world which, with all the greatness that Hegel grants it, bears the scar of this loss, that is a deficit that is demonstrated in the resigned and private character of this reaction. 
the noble Romans, I quote, have only therefore demonstrated the negative, this apathy in regard to life, in regard to everything external. They have only been able to be great in a subjective or negative manner, in the manner of a private citizen. The concept of sovereignty of the Stoics as the flight from reality is therefore marked by the powerlessness in regard to the external world and in a sense bears this as a stigma. The question is therefore, is there freedom as the freedom, the negative freedom of the private citizen? Or differently, is that really then freedom or only freedom in a deficient form? Hegel's response, the subjective or negative manner refers to a deficient form of freedom. Freedom remains an abstract freedom and abstract independence. The characterization as abstract here stands for something like not actually having become real or not determined in its content. The underlying idea of freedom here can be understood, among other things, with reference to Hegel's philosophy of right. If here also, the basic idea consists in that freedom must provide itself with a reality, also an institutional reality, that is, determine, concretize, or realize itself as something, then this has two aspects. On the one hand, the mere negated world, as negated for the individual, remains external, and therefore impossible to influence and foreign. Actual, realized freedom, as opposed to this, consists not in the abstraction from the world, but rather in appropriation of it. What here is decisive is that this appropriation is a transformation. The abstract negative freedom of the retreat from the world remains tied in oppos opposition to this, to that from which it retreats or what it negates. It can only re reject it, but cannot change it. Realized positive freedom in Hegel's sense therefore means the appropriative transformation or transformative appropriation of the conditions in which it realizes itself. Freedom means to be able to make something, namely the conditions under which one lives, one's own. I skip the last part and, uh, <coughs> and just with the last point and a small remark. I have focused mainly on the subjective dimensions of alienation. This subjective <laughs> dimension deals with the distorted relationship to the world from the perspective of the subject, its inability to relate to the world in a meaningful, meaningful way. On the other hand, as the remarks of the transformation or the possibility to trans <coughs> be transformative with respect to institutions, on the other hand, the objective dimension of alienation assumes the perspective of the world. The decisive question for a diagnosis of alienation then is what the social world and its institutions must look like in order for them to actually be a home for individuals or to be able to, um, <coughs> to provide the means uh, and, and the outline uh, so that individuals rationally can identify with the world. So this other part, the objective uh, freedom part or the objective uh, uh, alienation part, which would focus on the question of what, uh, how should these institutions look like so that individuals could identify with them, would be then, <coughs> so to say, the other part of uh, this diagnosis. Thank you a lot. We have uh, half an hour for questions, um, which I'm sure there will be many. So, who wants to make a start? 
chapter 19. So, um, so it's, it's common that it's being abstract as a freedom, or is democracy more abstract than Hegel and Marx's society, or is society abstract anyway without any freedom? That's what I want to And you said that Stoics, uh, you've had a lot of things to say about Stoics and, and their I start with the last point, I mean the more general uh, question, what is freedom? Um, <coughs> conceiving of alienation as an obstacle to freedom, I mean of obviously you can, can conceive of alienation as an obstacle or as the counterpart to a lot of things, like a counterpart to a good life, counterpart to uh, <coughs> domination, counterpart to, uh, let's name it, to conceive of alienation as an obstacle to freedom presupposes a notion of freedom that would not only be the so-called negative freedom of um, <coughs> the absence of uh, certain obstacles to, to what you want to do, but to what has been called a positive notion of freedom that includes uh, a positive mode of self-determination, of self-realization, of authenticity. I mean, the problem with these positive notions of freedom always being that it seems to be a whole bunch of things that uh, <coughs> that you can conceive of uh, or that, that you can, can name uh, positive freedom. And the whole debate goes on, I mean, exactly about this, these issues and what exactly would this bunch of things that, that uh, philosophers have called positive freedom, what this would consist in. So in um, referring to this in the alienation, uh, with respect to alienation, of course there's some idea of positive freedom in the background, and it's also, you can also see it as uh, uh, the other way around, as an attempt to clarify um, some of the aspects that are so important for the notion of positive freedom and the whole debate uh, of positive and negative freedom. <coughs> so when I um, referred to it in, in the end, and I mean, I, I brought into the picture this Hegelian idea of positive freedom as, I mean, he doesn't, uh, <coughs> it's not his, uh, his concept. I mean, he, he doesn't talk about positive freedom. Um, but let's say the idea that we have social preconditions and social institutions that would enable us to realize our freedom. And this is not something that is external to our being free, but something that is a constitutive part of it. Because uh, to a certain respect, we can only be free or realize, live uh, free uh, relationships, uh, live in, uh, um, live our life as a life of our own with respect to certain institutions that enable us to do so. But then, of course, one has to look at the institutions. This is what I... Um, briefly mentioned in the in the end of the talk. If you have such a demanding idea of, of, of freedom uh, that would uh, be opposed to indifference, that would be opposed to a merely negative, uh, the merely negative aspects of uh, being able to do whatever, whatever I want to do, 
Uh, then, on the other side, we have certain demands uh, on the side of the social practices, the institutions, uh, that then must be, must, so to say, fit to this, uh, to what I spelled as, out as the positive freedom or uh, idea of self-realization and self-determination uh, on the part of the sub subjects. Because it's not, uh, when you, um, coming back to the to the beginning and to these uh, the structure <coughs> and main uh, features of, of alienation, if it's true that this is about domination, freedom, and identification, if it's true that there is a certain connection between uh, self-determination and identification, and this is far from clear. I mean, as I said, it could be that there is a world that is totally... I don't know, full of meaning for people who are dominated or who are, I mean, at least uh, some, let's say, the conservative criticism of alienation uh, would always <coughs> complain about the loss of meaning in the modern world, the lo loss of attachment in the modern world, uh, which then would be an, an idea of alienation that detaches self-determination, freedom, and uh, the part of identification and <coughs> what was spelled out as self-realization through identification. Uh, so to say, uh, to hold that both have to be seen together so that the uh, indifference or the, uh, the <coughs> identification and the uh, self-determination aspect hang together uh, makes some point towards uh, what I, what, what I refer to as the demands that the institutions have to fulfill in order for a modern criticism of alienation that is not kind of backward leading to uh, this conservative idea of, of, of a world full of meaning <coughs> and of attachments. Um, the first part of your question, communism, <laughs> Marx, democracy, are these abstract or not? I mean, it depends, <laughs> I would say. Democracy, of course, is, uh, I mean, in the background, if, if you would ask me what in the background of the, in the political back background um, of these analyses, what then would be uh, to, ref to relate in a meaningful way to the social institutions that already shape your life, even if you don't want to be aware of it. Uh, this uh, is some way to, I mean, I could also say that's democracy. I mean, a democracy understood as not only as a, <coughs> as as a, as a very limited uh, part of our political institutions, democracy as something that <coughs> is part of our everyday life, of course, means <coughs> this kind of being connected to these uh, circumstances or of being connected to these social forces that shape our life and being able to transform them instead of only being able to get rid of them or to be a part of them. Of course, being a part of them is, I mean, uh, there is something about it that you should be able to uh, refrain from certain things and from institutions, even from democratic institutions. Uh, also, of course, there's something to be said about, uh, to be said in favor of uh, the private life of uh, someone who lives in, an, in a city. But at the same time, yes, I mean, if... if, if uh, if you're asking me about democracy, I would say this can be spelled out or the meaning of what it means to uh, live in, in a democracy or in a real democracy and in, in uh, institutions and in democratic institutions that we are not alienated from, 
uh, would uh, exactly match uh, the point that I want to make. Um, I'm not sure about the communism, Marxism, and the other part of what you mentioned. Well, there's a number of other questions yeah. already, so maybe Sorry. we should, uh, should move on. So you go next, then you, then you, then you. So I was going to so I was going to ask a question about subjective and objective alienation, but you uh -huh. covered that at the end of the talk. Um, so, but I'll, I've reformulated the question just about anyway, so um, I'll go ahead. So subjective alienation seems to stem from certain kind of cognitive failings, or certain <coughs> kind of psycholo psychological failings, where we uh, fail to view other people or ourselves or our nature to ultimate reality in the right or appropriate way. And objective alienation seems to stem from um, certain objective conditions in the social world, uh, like the capitalist economy or something like that, which prevents us from being mm -hmm. at home in the world. So the kind of question which I wanted to push you on was, um, can we be uh, alienated in an, a non-alienated world? So if, the, if we set up our set social and political institutions in the right way... Sorry, can we be alienated in a non-alienated world? Yeah. Okay, not the other so way So if we set up mm -hmm. our, our social and political institutions in the right way, can we um, still be alienated? Um, where I think Marx would answer no and Hegel would possibly answer yes. Um, and my second question is just the reverse of that. So can we be uh, non-alienated or unalienated in an alienated world? Where I think Marx would answer no and Hegel, I think, would also probably answer no. But I'm not sure. So right. Yeah. No, that, so that is where I was asking back because I, I, I thought that you would uh, ask whether one can be non-alienated in an mm -hmm. alienated world. Uh, uh, in this case, I would say no, <laughs> with both Marx and Hegel. Right. Um, <coughs> even if, yeah, I mean, even if one could be more careful, or one could be um, holding that alienation is a matter of degree, as I did in the beginning, holding that alienation uh, has to be. Uh, Redefined as some kind of—I mean, not, not only referring to the totality—I mean, to the to, to the totality of society or of—I mean. <coughs> so one could say, of course, there can be non-alienated uh, parts of an alienated world, but still, I mean, coming back to the uh, to the matter of the way that the surrounding, the social surrounding kind of determines what even in these small parcels of non-alienation as you might figure it out in whatever personal relationships or um, or even small-scale communities for example I mean when you think of someone like McIntyre in the end he goes for small-scale communities who would uh, yep or who would, would kind of um, still live uh, and revive certain social practices that could be seen as their own, <coughs> as non-instrumental and so on. And uh, so I think, for example, McIntyre and a whole bunch of, I mean, some years ago we would have said hippies <laughs> would, uh, or, or parts of the alternative movement would have said, okay, of course you can, you can form certain communities. But then, Coming back to this question, you must always be, always be aware that you are part of a, uh, for example, economic situation and um, a world that might kind of disturb your non-alienated uh, relations to you, yourself, the world, the others that you form a certain community with. So, <coughs> I mean, um, with some 
yeah, one has to be careful about that. But uh, I would say it's maybe nowadays it's more important to, even if the critique of uh, a perspective that is uh, solely directed towards the totality, even if this had some truth in it, I would say nowadays under, under the conditions we're living in, um, the adverse would be, I mean, to be more careful about uh, the way that you're influenced by uh, environments and things and, and practices that you're not even aware of is maybe more important. I mean, the sense of connectedness to a social whole uh, that you might not be aware of seems to me, politically spoken, more uh, important than uh, the other way the, the, uh, that <coughs> in a certain left-wing debate has, has become prominent that at a certain uh, period of time one should be aware of that there is not, not everything is always, I mean, this kind of uh, as it were, what Adorno called totaler Verblendungszusammenhang and a totality of uh, this is Verblendungszusammenhang I wouldn't, wouldn't know the English world um, but you know what I mean uh, the first question, can we be alienated Verblendungszusammenhang can we be alienated in a non-alienated world I mean then this would be uh, some psychological actually this then would be a psychological question of course I mean it would be stupid to um, um, to say that in a non-alienated world would we live in the perfect uh, democracy would we live under perfect economic conditions and so on uh, and in a world that that would be our own because we are part of and transforming the social in institutions we're living in uh, to hold that there would be no one who could be in this subjective psychological sense be alienated uh, would be uh, naive I would say uh, so and I wouldn't even think that Marx was as naive because he, I mean he could make a distinction between uh, even if, if uh, sometimes it sounds as if the perfect happiness and the perfect reconciliation of everything uh, would be conceived uh, of in communism. I wouldn't think that he was as uh, naive. So, yeah, answer to the first question. What was it? The first? No, the second? No, the first, yes. Uh, um, which brings me to the beginning of your remark. I wouldn't say that subjective alienation, if it's not, a, I mean, maybe one should then uh, make a further distinction between subjective in brackets psychological and subjective alienation as subjective alienation because um, even if this sounds, I mean, and I would also say it's not a cognitive failure. It's not something that, I mean, if it goes to, if, if you make the further step to and, 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 and connect it to the institutional and objective side, you will see that this is not about uh, people who are not able to realize that everything is uh, that they, they live a meaningful life. I mean, the, the Perlman Beispiel is not meant to, to be a real example of alienation, but to spell it, I just use it in order to spell out a structure or some structural dimension of, I mean, what this ident identification part uh, that is so important in Marx and Hegel, uh, what this could be about. But, um, of course, I would think of, for, I mean, take the relation uh, that people have towards their work. I mean, maybe Perlman is, is a misleading example because you would say he is he a scientist. I mean, he had this perfect uh, uh, mode of identification, but, but most people 
uh, are living under conditions, for example, in their working life, uh, where it would be stupid to identify with it, or where identification as the neoliberal working conditions sometimes uh, demand, even in a, in a much stronger sense <laughs> than they did before. I mean, then <coughs> than it was uh, uh, demanded before. I mean, in this case, exactly, identification might be an instance of alienation. I mean, this uh, uh, the flexible worker under certain conditions to at the same time should uh, kind of uh, distract the boundaries between his private life and uh, his working day. Uh, this is not what Marx meant by, I mean, this this idea of uh, people should be a uh, fisher in the morning, a critique in the uh, at noon, and so on. I mean, this is not what what, what this was about. <laughs> was about even if you could could see it as a somehow ironical. Uh, sense of uh, abol abolishing alienation because now you have to be uh, a certain kind of new flexible worker where I mean whatever you're doing even if, um, if, if you're socializing or so so this is not what uh, what I mean it's not about a cognitive I mean one thing is not it's not about a cognitive failure it's something that uh, the sense of being able to cope with oneself or of appropriating what uh, one is doing uh, would, um, I mean, there, there would be more dimensions inherent than just the dimensions that, that would um, match by a cognitive failure, but also it's not a failure. It's something that, as a reaction to certain uh, uh, practices and institution is um, as you could say, at the same time, appropriate and not appropriate. It's appropriate because it's a result of uh, uh, what these institutions and social practices offer you, but at the same time, of course, it should be seen as a failure because uh, leading a non-alienated life would be something different. So. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think I'd like to take Sorry. some more questions. Um, so you're next. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you for the talk. Very uh, illuminating. Um, uh, and the question I've got isn't um, a criticism, but might sound like one, well, uh, just a worry. Uh, you made it clear at the beginning that you weren't going to do any empirical social analysis, but you were going to um, analyze the concept of your mm -hmm. uh, title suggests. Uh, and that's the worry. Um, that's your worry. Yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, a couple of maneuvers that I took you to have made. Uh, for example, if you've got a, um, a concept of uh, personhood which uh, has as part of it that people have projects and involvements <coughs> and so on, then uh, indifference would be um, symptomatic of this condition we're mm -hmm. talking about. And you asked a very sort of transcendental sounding question at the end, what would the world have to be like for us to consult? Uh, the worry is that um, uh, the analysts um, description of an alienated condition uh, might not match any candidate for an application of the concept. And when you use uh, words like experience and feeling and so on, uh, there's a problem of whether or not the person who's said to be alienated uh, would see themselves, could see themselves as um, um, living in that condition, that way of life that's alienated. I mean, there's a problem here with the semantics of uh, uh, what the, the condition we're referring to. But in any case, I mean, uh, I was just wondering what you would think about something like, uh, if you've uh, engaged with this um, ethno-methodology, uh, where you have some detailed analyses of people in situations where um, what you are starting with is an account of how they 
live their lives, some kind of clear account of practices and so on. And if you can build from members' own descriptions of their situations, if you can reconstruct the concept that way, then you don't have this problem of, you know, lapsing into a lot of talk about whether Marx or Hegel meant this or that, where actually we're supposed to be talking about uh, uh, experience. Let me start with this uh, with the last remark. I mean, experience in ethnomethodology, ethnometho. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would say. Uh, the, an analysis guided by concepts like alienation and informed by, uh, and, mean, and I mean, of course, this is only part of the project that one, I mean, since I, I actually think it's a philosophically rich concept, and this uh, uh, richness somehow uh, refers to Marx Hegel, but also to the, uh, there's also another line of uh, uh, philosophies of alienation that goes I mean, from Kierkegaard to Heidegger and so on, and uh, I would think um, <coughs> to work with the concept of alienation, it's, uh, it's a good thing to take into account not only both philosophical lines, but also uh, the everyday use of the concept, the use that has been made by social movements in order to uh, identify certain problems. So I think it's a rich concept in um, as a philosophical concept, as a concept that has been used by social movements and social actors in order to make sense of their own experiences, uh, which then, then leads me to your experience question. I would doubt that one makes any experience without uh, concepts. I mean, without, I mean, and any, and 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 most of all, social actors uh, and social actors who, at a certain point, not only are not only able to describe their practices, but also who. Uh, somehow um, uh, have a critical distance towards some of their practices. They need concepts, they need something, and they always have some kind of concept, uh, how to make sense of what they are um, uh, the, the experiencing, what they are living, or, what, or to make sense of and name uh, the kind of the, uh, the way of suffering even that they experience and so on. So, I wouldn't go for the division. I mean, I, I would say <coughs> that one of the methodology methodol of, I mean, one fortunate thing about the concept of alienation, at least as I w want to use it, is that when it comes to the, to the matter of whether um, the social actor or the philosopher, uh, whether the subjective standard of evaluating one's own practices or the, uh, the standard of the scientist, the philosopher, or the one who knows better uh, whether this is a good life or, or not, I would say that <coughs> the concept of alienation is some, somewhere in between. It's more like a s uh, maybe it, it could be, be um, compared with psychoanalytical terms who at the same time who, who somehow work within the self-interpretation of the individual at the same I mean and I would say concepts like alienation 
uh, in the same manner work within the self-interpretation of social activism movements and uh, uh, social groups, which then means that whether the interpretation is right or wrong, in the end has something to do with uh, whether it matches, whether there's something worth, whether there's some <coughs> resonance uh, on the side of the social actors uh, to this interpretation that has something to do with using concepts or evaluating uh, uh, social practices as going in the wrong direction or not. So I don't know whether it's you're looking uh, <laughs> skeptical, so probably I, I, I'm, I'm not matching your, uh, your point, but this at least is what, yeah, what comes into, into my mind when you uh, kind of refer to, or seem to refer to, somehow pure experience. Yeah. Okay. But you would. Oh, okay. Thank you. I really enjoyed the talk. Um, but um, I was just wondering, um, I've been quite interested recently in the concept of, of something which, well, it's it's technically dead, dead now as a concept, but in the 1930s and 40s it was particularly popular, even though it seemed to alienate a lot of people, which was the idea of the, um, the uh, American dream, where um, the, I, the original ideas of the American dream were, were just that people could raise a family, they could, they could be happy, they could not be unhappy in America, but obviously after the Great Depression, a lot of people started interpreting that as we can just manipulate a lot of people. Um, do you think it's more, and um, it caused a lot of problems with people and society at the time, do you think it was the problem directly of the people or of the concept that, or of the concept that, and the misinterpretation and the ability for it to be misinterpreted which caused the problems, or was it the people themselves and the fact, do you think that people sort of had um, these ideas of greed within them and they just used that concept? I don't, I'm interested in your answer. I mean, I would say, <coughs> if I understood you rightly, I would say there are somehow misleading and in order to uh, bring up another old-fashioned term, ideological uh, concepts that lead to collective self-understandings and also lead to uh, a certain deficiencies in the way one can understand one's own situation. And the American dream <coughs> might very well be one of these. Because my first question would have been the answer about the workplace and about um, kind of um, contemporary situations underlying mm -hmm. capitalism um, that might lead to false identifications. And um, I think, on uh, in broader terms, my question is: isn't there a con like, isn't there a contradiction when you say you want to separately look at subjective and objective um, forms of alienation? Because isn't the one um, inherently um, changing the other. So can you really talk about subjective forms of alienation when you don't talk about um, their kind of relation to the world or kind of the potentiality of, of false identifications and um, in a way of, of the possibility of interpolation or something into these, into these um, perceived forms of um, alienation. And so and I think this 
to me that's maybe um, a problem of imminent critique in general and um, of, of this idea of recognition that um, don't we have to think at the same time about how we can change the world and the subject that lives inside it and can we really separate the two because if we could think about new forms of recognition could we not then think also of um, forms of alienation that maybe are today rather forms of resistance and that we can then overcome that was a bit confusing in the end, but also, like, basically, this um, the question is also, aren't the forms of alienation that you described, could they not also be all forms of resistance very radically against um, the world that these subjects live in? <coughs> it is quite on to come. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Maybe yeah. we only have five minutes left. <laughs> no. Okay. Maybe the one after the other was a misunderstanding. I, I, I wouldn't go for one after the other. Let's first look at the subjective dimension, then at the objective dimension when it comes to social analysis. Of course not. Of course, then you have to uh, face both at the, at the same time. This is only true for the, I mean, and only also only an effect of the limited time and space. And I mean, philosophic work takes some time and you start with <coughs> certain uh, but this doesn't mean that I uh, haven't done or wouldn't uh, or would say uh, one could could do it separate or that one shouldn't have both parts of the picture uh, in mind. That, of course, one has. And when it comes to social diagnosis or to the analysis of, for example, the contemporary um, working condition and false identifications, um, Maybe this goes also back to this: uh, the doubt. Maybe the analysis might not match any match any condition. I mean, when I started thinking about work and alienated work, because I mean, as you as you saw and might have suffered from, this is everything is on a very. Uh, I mean, the the attempt to spell out the inner structure or the grammar of alienation. Uh, is somehow abstract, of course, but at the same time, I would say it's n when I, when I started thinking uh, about reviving the or, or rethinking the concept, for example, of alienated work, uh, I would say that it matches quite good, and that the attempt <coughs> to reconstruct this is um, um, has can serve in order to. I mean, the things th that I mentioned with uh, respect to this contemporary phenomena of neoliberalism and, and over-identification uh, in work, if you use the old, old concept, or I mean, some concept of alienation and of alienated work <coughs> that would be focused only uh, towards these things, I mean, like... Uh, an, an assembly line and the worker who would only do the same uh, movement all the time and so on. I mean, this is what people think of when they think of alienated work. Uh, and this <coughs> obviously is something that uh, is still uh, around. I mean, one should be careful not only talking about the new, uh, um, <coughs> flexible, and uh, I mean, even in, in uh, the, f uh, the flexibilization of work, there are different parts of it. There is this kind of over-identification with work, but there's also uh, some effects that are alienating in the very old sense <coughs> of the term, because uh, what, uh, what, what people working then can do or is within the reach of, of, of their own decisions uh, is a very limited space and so on. But still, even these new uh, 
and phenomena um, in the world of labor that might be difficult for the, for for the alienation uh, analysis to um, to address, and there has been a lot of. Uh,